If you have a Bible and you'd like to read along with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to begin reading in verse 6 down to verse 21. So we'll give you a moment to turn there. The title of our message this morning, The Pursuits of Our Youth. The Pursuits of Our Youth. Again, if you can't see the Lord working, um, I hope he'll show you today that he is. Pray for me this morning that I could say what the Lord would have me to say today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. It says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Or excuse, excuse me, therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world that they not be high excuse me, that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. We'll conclude our reading this morning, and as we've already told you, the title of our message today is The Pursuits of Our Youth. The Pursuits of Our Youth. Now, that could be understood in numerous ways. We could be speaking in generalities about when we were young, what we pursued, uh, but that's not the nature in which I intend it to be understood today. Um, I would like to talk about today's youth and their pursuits. What young people pursue today. And if you are a young Christian, 
I would ask especially for your attention this morning as the thoughts the Lord has laid upon my heart early in this week um, have revolved around uh, things that concern and involve you. And so I pray that you would be attentive today. Um, As a preface to our message today, um, I want to ask or request something because some of these things that are read here and that I'm going to talk about this morning can be easily misunderstood. Um, I may not do a good job articulating and getting it out because there are shades of meaning here that matter. And um, what I always fear is that in an attempt, in a poor attempt for me to communicate these truths, that you'll hear um, something different than what I intend. And in doing so, write off everything that's being said. Uh, Because we're going to talk about some of the things that this text talked about today, and that has to do with money. And I think what Satan would like to do with people in order to be self-justifying is for you to hear me say, you're a sinner if you make money. And you're doing the wrong thing. That's what he would like you to say or like you to hear. And that's not what I'm saying this morning. I'm also not saying that it's okay to pursue it at all costs. That is a sin. And there's no way around that. And we'll talk about that. And no doubt there are some things that must be led or left to each man's conscience within this area. But there are some things that are not. And so what I ask this morning is that you pray that God reveals to you and I'll do my best to communicate what God's word is saying. And that you'll hear it. And that like anything, if you're in violation of it, that God would prompt you to change. And that if you're not, that, um, that would, your conscience would be eased about those things. And that a false sense of guilt that Satan might impose upon you in order to stop you from serving him with freedom, that that wouldn't happen either. Uh, but I felt like sharing that this morning. Now, Paul here and is writing to this young man, and I don't know exactly how old Timothy was uh, because the date of this book is not known. Of course, the date of his birth is not known. The most common thing I found was that Um, He was born around 17 A.D., and that this was written around 62 to 64 A.D. Now, there was a lot of playroom in all of that, that he ended up dying, Timothy, that is, in 97 A.D., so about 80 years old is how old he was. And this is about when he's between 35 and 45 years old, and Timothy is addressing him as a young man. And so I think that's a noteworthy point, first of all, that he wasn't 16, He's, in our terms, more of in the middle age range. If you think of 70 or 80 as kind of a a final point for most people, then you're looking at about the midway point of Timothy's life. And this man, Paul, deeply loves Timothy. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that he meets Timothy in Timothy's home place. And you can read that in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And evidently, Paul was impressed by Timothy because 
two things happen. One, people begin to recommend Timothy. They begin where he lives at. Now, we know what the Bible teaches and what even our own experience teaches, that often when a person lives and grows up somewhere, people look at that person with perhaps a more scrutinized eye or can be a little more judgmental against one of their own. Jesus taught us that a prophet's not well accepted in his home country. Nonetheless, Timothy had a good rapport amongst the people he was with. It seems to imply in that scripture, as well as the beginning of 2 Timothy, that his mother was saved, that she knew the Lord, that she was a good woman, that her, his father was a Greek. And then it seems to, if you go back and read in, in Acts 16, abruptly stop and not say anything else about his father. And just the way it's worded, to me it implies his mother was saved, his father was not. I'll let you look at that yourself and, and you can read that for yourself. But then later in 2 Timothy, just here a couple years after 1 Timothy is written, Paul is writing and he says that he remarked about the faith that was once found in his mother and his grandmother. And so it seems like the situation going on here, as best I can understand it, is he's got a saved mother and grandmother that are faithful Jews and Christians, that he has grown up and that he has clung to this faith that they believe in. Now, not only has he been saved, but he has clung to it. He is pursuing it. And in Acts chapter 16, is a, a, in just the previous chapter, Paul has concluded his first missionary journey. He went out with Paul, or excuse me, Paul went out with Barnabas, and they went on this long trek around spreading the gospel, and they're preparing to go back on a second missionary journey to, as it says, confirm the word again. So they're going to revisit a lot of these same places, and also, as we learn later on, go into other cities they had not been to before. But Paul notices in this first stop that he goes to that there is this young man who shows this potential to do much good in the Lord's work. And what I imagine happens here, this isn't explicitly said, is that Paul having that suspicion, being impressed with this young man and desiring to bring him along with him, first wants to validate his perception by going around to some of the people that Timothy grew up with that have a good rapport and say, hey, I see this young man. He seems to excel in many things. He seems to have a, an interest in godliness and godly things. I want to take him with me on my missionary journeys. What do you think about that? And they begin to say, I think that would be a great idea. He's a wonderful young man. And they begin to explain and express different things. That's how I read into Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Whether it's that extensive or not, what we know is that he had a good report amongst the people he was with. And so, from that point forward we find that Paul takes Timothy throughout the book of Acts as those things are unfolding, that when he goes to Philippi, whenever he goes to Athens, when he goes to all these different places, based upon that, Timothy is traveling with him. And he's observing these things. He's seeing what's going on. Now, at this point, Timothy would have been pretty young. And he's going around and he's seeing these things. Now, Paul, before this is the case, sends Timothy, before the book of 1 Timothy, to Ephesus to go do some work in Ephesus. 
And now Paul is writing to Timothy to help instruct that church and to instruct that young man on what to do. And so as you read through the book of 1 Timothy, you'll find there are just these, it's just command after command. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. And he's coming to the end of that, hearing this right here. And the particular thing that early in the week really grabbed a hold of me was in the King James. It says this, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, and it lists a whole bunch of those things. And I thought, what does follow after mean? And as I began to look, it means to pursue it. Pursue these things. But right before it says to pursue that, it says flee from these things. Now, if we were to take even the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? If we were to take the most um, restrictive view of what that word, these things mean, what at least we know is it's going to back us up to verse 9. Now, it may go further back than that, but if we look to verse 9, I want us to know this morning as I begin to consider this text that Paul is teaching us there are some things we flee and there are some things we pursue. Now, young person today, as I begin to consider this text in light of today, one thing that continuously came back to me was my last few years of teaching in the public school system. Because there was a slight change that began to occur the last two or three years that I was there that was very, very concerning to me about the group of young people that are presently being brought up. And it relates to this $10 word called nihilism. Nihilism is a notion that was popularized at the end of the 19th century by a a guy who has had a tremendous effect upon academia and upon our culture today, and his name was Friedrich Nietzsche. And he promoted this idea of nihilism. Now, nihilism has different components to it, but I want to highlight one thing that I saw present that highly disturbed me about the young people that I was teaching, seniors in high school. It was this. Life doesn't have any purpose or meaning. Nothing matters. And so oftentimes, one thing that amazed me was that I had these students in my class and noticeably, over the course of a few years, my average grade started going down. Generally, when I started, it was between 74, 75, 77% if I had a really smart class. But then slowly I began to notice that I wasn't changing much, but the average grade began to go down. Well, at first I began to explore that from a personal standpoint. Am I, is it me? But there were classes that I had that the average grade was an F, average. 56, 57, 58% was class average. But the thing that was more disturbing to me than that was when I would try to talk to kids about it before when I would bring kids by my desk and I'd show them their grade and I'd talk to them about their work habits and I'd talk to them about the things they had done wrong. There was this, pers- there was this attitude of they care. They care if for nothing else because mom cares and because they know they're going to get in trouble. But as time went on, what I began to notice more and more is they just didn't care. There was this apathetic attitude. Oh, well. 
I would see kids taking my class one time, two times, three times. Really nice kids. Just didn't care. And when I approach them about it, that's the attitude that they portrayed. Is it, it, it doesn't matter. It's just high school. I'll go over here to do this other thing. I'll get my GED, and it just doesn't matter. And it bothered me. Because not only was that the attitude that many of them portrayed towards school, but it's how they portrayed towards other people. Is that people would be suffering, people would be hurting, kids would be getting bullied. Well, I'm just glad it's not me. Or what does it matter? Why, do we, why should I care? Now, just a few years ago, prior to that, it seemed like there was at least this natural compulsion derived from our culture that, you know what? People matter. Things in life matter. And at least there was a, 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 a tinge of guilt or shame if I detached from that. But as time went on, I began very, began to get very disturbed that there was just this, I have no motivation, I have no care, because why does it all matter anyway? It's an attitude that is highly pervasive today amongst the young people's generation. Why should I try? As long as I have my video games, as long as I have my Snapchat, and as long as I have my Cheetos, what does it matter? I'm happy. That is a horrible thing that is pervasive today. And it's dangerous. Because, listen, things do matter. Now, what... Frederick Nietzsche would push is after he talked about this whole idea of nihilism and one aspect of that being nothing matters, he would say, the inevitable conclusion you're led to is depression. And that's true. If you take the attitude that nothing matters, you inevitably, from the the man who formalized the concept in the philosophy and from many who have followed after, atheists and agnostics of today will all admit it will inevitably lead you to a place of melancholy and depression. And so now what they advocate is ways to invent meaning in life. Now, again, that, all of that, I'm not getting into the details of how all that is wrong. My point is this morning it's very present and it's going to lead to a destructive place. I've said it here before, but the only thing that's more scary than that, that life doesn't matter, is that everything in life does matter. To me, that, that, that's just earth-chilling to consider. Because if everything matters, if everything I do and everything I say and every way that I act and every interaction that I have has meaning and value, not temporally, but eternally, then doesn't it make us, as especially as Christians, have to be compelled to be more considerate about how we use these things? Doesn't it compel us to think twice about what we're instructing? Now, one way that youth go today is, is based upon nihilism, but there's also another path that ought to be chilling to parents and grandparents and to us who are trying to have an influence on our young people, and that is this. They follow where you lead. All right, we're in a a very copycat society today. Just go to social media, and that's what all social media is about today, young people, is it's 
how can I copy and just and put a slight nuance to what this other person that's gotten famous has done, how this person looks, how this person acts, how can I get more likes on TikTok, how can I get more, and I'm just going to tweak all of these things just a little bit, but we live in this copycat society, and unfortunately, many young people are looking to all the wrong people to copycat and to, and to fashion their life after. And so, what if, if, if you were the only person that influenced your children, what path would that lead them towards? In other words, what is the, you know, we all have, there, there's a lot more complexity to our lives than just one thing, and I realize that are two things. But if the major things of our life, the major focuses and pushes of our life are the things that are influencing our young people here, which direction are they being pushed? Well, Paul is warning Timothy about some things. But this morning, before we get to Paul's warning, what I want to advocate to our young people is, first of all, if you're hanging out with the group of people that push this notion that life doesn't matter, and so you might as well just go and be happy and play your little video games and get on your social media, you're with the wrong group of people that are going to lead you to a dangerous place. It is inevitable. But you will. Secondly, this, if you think you can knowingly follow the wrong people and yet stay away from the pain that they experience, if you think that you can follow on social media, if you can watch YouTube videos, if you can do all of these things and surround your mind, listen, oftentimes people think this, you know what Satan wants is he wants my life. He wants me to go out into a bar. He wants me to go out and perform activities that are all bad. But listen, what Satan wants even more than your life is your mind because he knows that is what is going to govern everything else. And in modern day, how does he control that? Through that stupid device everybody has. And we put right before ourselves all the time. And underneath all those things, you know, that's one of the things that uh, there was a recent Disney movie that came out in Canto. Some of you may have seen it, some of you not. I can't, those songs I can't get out of my head because my kids just watch it over and over and over again and I... I'll be in the middle of the night, and I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I'll have one of those songs just going through my head, and can't wait to get back to sleep from that. But in all those movies, you realize there are themes, right? There are things that they're pushing. I'm always fascinated. I always watch those movies with my kids for really one predominant reason, and that is not necessarily the explicit, it's the underlying things. It's these undercurrents. And subliminally, our kids don't know that they're getting fed and pushed in these directions. But here's the danger of it from a parent's standpoint. Parents have this idea, and and this is one thing that bothered me about the school system, that kids have the right to due process. That's the Fifth Amendment. That they have the right to their privacy. That's the Fourth Amendment. That they have the right to all of these things. No, they don't. They don't have the right to those things. You are their parent. And you are responsible for what goes within them. 
And listen, it might make you mad as a kid for your parents to do that, but I want you to know that if your parent is nosy and wants to know what's going on amongst you and your friends and the things that you're watching, if they love you enough to call you out awkwardly about the things that you have seen and the things that you have said, I want you to know now that your parents love you much more than most parents in America today. Here. Today, I care. It concerns me. All the little things that these people have that are being pushed upon our children. Listen, if 8, 10, or 12 hours a day our kids are getting fed this, and it's slowly pushing onto them, and there is no other inlet except for what we're doing right now, I can tell you who's most likely going to win, and it's not going to be us. The media today is accused about one of their jobs, and it's called the gatekeeper. Well, I would say the same thing to parents. You're the gatekeeper. Listen, that's a hard job. It takes time. You know, sometimes Satan, what he does to me is he, he makes me think that, for example, what I do preaching here is that I ought to give all my attention and time to this, and that whenever I'm getting really busy, I've got revivals going on, and I'm preaching on Sunday mornings, and we've got activities here at the church, there's this uh, tendency for me to just not be as attentive to the gatekeeping job of my children. And it took me a little while parenting to recognize that that's more important for me to do than to spend a little more time doing this. I say that to say this, young person, that's how important it is is that I, as your pastor, feel like that being the gatekeeper to my children's eyes, to their ears, to their heart, is more important than spending more time studying God's Word to preach. Now, both of them are important, and there are seasons which I have to prioritize one or the other. But when it comes to its core, I could give up preaching in one sense, but I'm the only one. Because somebody can take my place, right? You can have another pastor. Who's going to stop those things from getting to my children? Just me. That's it. If you have parents who who monitor those things, who are accused by your other friends of being hover parents, you know there there's a degree to which a parent can hover where it's detrimental, and I'm not arguing that. But listen, the accusation of a 14 year old doesn't mean it's true. Maybe it's because your parents love you. Deeply, and they care what gets in because what they know is what Paul is teaching here, and that is what gets in is going to govern the direction of your life. And so, one of the things that Paul is concerned about here that is so rampant today that even preachers and pastors are hesitant to preach on because of the reactions of the congregation, and that is this that people will love and pursue money above all else. And so, there is this sense to which People think, you know, if I, if I push my kid towards college and a good career, that they can make money and provide for their family. There is no harm to that. Listen, there is a harm to that if you are not properly prefacing the message and all throughout shaping that child as to why that they're doing this. And it's not just so they can enjoy good vacations. It's not just so they can have a respectable career. It's not for all these reasons, but 
fundamentally, it's to obey the word of God and glorify him. And over and over in the scriptures, there are warnings because what God knows is that when we accumulate money and stuff, it begins to warp and mess with our spiritual minds and possibly lead us astray. And yet it seems like in American culture today, we can disagree about a lot of things, but it almost seemed like when I was at the school corporation, what we could all agree on is we want our kids to get good jobs and make money. I think, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I don't think so. What I want my students to do is get good character. You know, I had a girl one time, she was a straight-A student. She cheated on something. I was reading one of her essays, and I thought, huh? You're an AP kid. You're a smart kid, but you ain't that smart. Right? Well, I took her stuff, and I popped it into Google, and guess what? There was a whole essay on Google. (laughs) And she had plagiarized it all. Well, I had a pretty strict policy in my class. it's, It's all equal. If you cheat, it's a zero. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you... It's a zero. Well, I was confronted by her, by mom, by principal. You went to the superintendent. And you know what the thing was? It's going to hurt her chances of getting this scholarship. And my reply was very simple. What if there's more important thing than her getting a scholarship? Like, what if this is a really important lesson that she'll never forget? I can tell you of an occasion where I cheated on something in high school, told on myself, and my, my teacher gave me a zero. And she looked at me after I told on myself for cheating, and she said this, I'm really disappointed that you did that, but I respect you more now than I did before. I was a junior in high school. I still remember that woman's integrity. I still remember what it did to my grade. It hurt. But it was this landmark occasion where I thought, you know what? I learned right there, integrity is more important than a grade. You know what's more important than money? You. You are. Who you become, what you are, how you're fashioned after God's image is much more important than a career, a money, or all the things doting your parents could do on you. Here, here's what he says. He teaches us in verses 6 through 8. Be content with life. Is not so many of the, the, the ills of God's people today is that we're simply just not content, and yet the irony is that we have more than any people in the history of the world have ever dreamed of. Like, isn't that, if you were to take, you know, all these people from past centuries and cultures and, and come and listen to our complaints, I'll often when I begin to complain, at the end of my complaint say, first world problem. Because you know what, most of my problems are first world problems. I met this guy this week from Burundi. Uh, he's a tornado victim. I got to ask him about his life. We were talking there at Chick-fil-A and, and he said, uh, well, I'm... I'm I'm from Burundi, but I've never stepped foot in Burundi. So what do you mean? He said, well, I grew up in Tanzania. I was born in Tanzania. He said, Burundi in 1972 broke out in a civil war. My parents fled there, and they went to Tanzania into a camp, a refugee camp. And they lived in this refugee camp for 30 years. And I was born. When I was born there, that's all I ever knew. Until 2009. I had never been outside of this small refugee camp in Tanzania. And all they would give to each family in the little huts that we lived in was corn and rice each week. 
One day in 2009, these men showed up and they said to our parents, if you've been here since the beginning, you're going to America. I had never ridden in a car before. So for the first time I get in a car, I get on an airplane and they fly me over here to America. I get off and the first place I see is Bowling Green. I'm sitting listening to his story and I'm thinking, what? That's your life? That was your life? All the problems of that day just seemed so small to me. No wonder you're having a hard time catching your footing in life. No wonder you might lack for a little bit of direction and need a little bit of help. And listen, friends, those are the people we're sent to go to. I sat there just compelled by his story. Four children, wife, he met in the camp. They're in Tanzania. They happened to all both get brought over here. He found her when she got over here and they got married. Here, Paul says this, with food and raiment, therewith be content. And that was one of the amazing things when I listened to him is he didn't seem bitter or angry. It was just life. That's just what it was. That's what happened. I looked at him. I said, you recognize how an amazing life that you've had, right? Like you, you recognize that's not normal. But to him, it was just completely normal. Here, Paul is talking, be content. And then he goes to the flip side of it, and he begins to warn us. Be careful. Now, young person, this is where I'm speaking to you, because you're going to be pressed by many groups to pursue riches. Now, I'm going to get to that word pursue here in a minute. But you're going to get pressed to pursue it. Here's what he says. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Oh, this is where the King James, to me, just sometimes we read over these things. Most important words in that text is will be. But they that will be rich fall into a snare. Here's how you could read it. Here's a different version. But those who crave to get rich. Crave it. I've heard young people, whenever I was teaching, I'd always... You know, try to take a good portion of my students aside because they're senior year and I don't want to talk to them and I ask them about their, what, what's your goal? What, what are you trying to do? And I can't tell you how many students would say, I don't really care what it is, I'm just going to be rich. And a lot of them had the intelligence to do it. They had the potential and the ability. It doesn't matter if I'm a lawyer or a doctor, I don't care if I'm an entrepreneur, but one day I'm just going to be rich. And very often this is the thought that would come back to me. You just don't know what you're getting yourself into. Right, because here's what he says. They that will be rich desire fall into temptation and a snare, a trap. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Those are a lot of big words, a lot of biblical words. Here's what it's essentially saying. When a person desires, that's what they're seeking after. Young person, you right now, you know whatever I'm going to do, I just want to make sure I have the American dream and I pursue the riches and I accumulate all those things that I want. Here he's saying, you're setting up for yourself a snare and a trap and it's going to lead men down to perdition. Now I, I began to study that word. What is he meaning about men? Because I assumed he's saying it just leads oneself. But as I, I, I studied further, I can't conclude whether he's saying it just leads that person down deeper or it leads many other people with that person's pursuit down that direction. 
In other words, this. If I, as a husband, if I, as a friend, am pursuing something, I'm taking people with me in that pursuit. My wife, my children, my conversation with my friends, my business partners, my coworkers, those people that I influence, I may end up, because of my ungodly pursuit of riches, drown not just myself in these things, but all of those people going with me. And so he's saying, be careful. Be careful. And then he goes into the famous verse. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, people, I'll just be very honest with you this morning. People who seek to justify their pursuit of wealth will oftentimes say, it's the love of money, not money. That's the first sign you ought to be careful if that's what you want to focus on. Because what it probably means is you're pursuing the wrong thing. The love of money, you're right, it's the love of money. How do you discern the love of money? Well, 1 John 2.15 tells us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That always confused me for a while, because I thought, you know, saved people can love the world. I began to understand the last part of that verse, the love of the Father not in him, means this. It crowds out the love of God. In other words, it's like what Jesus taught. No man can serve two masters. Why? Because he'll love the one and he'll hate the other. In essence, think of it like this. You have a bucket. And in that bucket only fits so much. And if you begin to pour in love of the world, what comes out? The love of God. It has to. And the more you pour the love of the world in, guess what? the more the love of God is crowded out. Until if you keep pouring, you can't sense any of the love of God. He says, for the love of money is the root of all, it should be all manner of evil, all types of evil. Right? Because we know there are some evils that are not related to money. Lust, that's not related to, to money. He's saying all types of evil is related to the love of money. He continues and said this, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and listen to this, this expressive words, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I, I still have a hard time understanding people pursue money, and they go after it. All the time being blinded or blinding themselves to all the people who have it and have sought it at all costs and are completely unhappy. He says, listen, Here's the reality. When you pursue that, it's the trade-off I think God is against. Because I've been studying this. I've got to teach a lesson uh, at Fairview Memorial in a couple weeks that has to do with heavenly investments. And as the more I began to study it, the more I began to realize, you know what God is against? It's not the wealth. It's the trade-off you make in order to get it. Is that if you're pursuing this, and that's why he gets to this next place. He says this, but thou, O man of God. Now he turns, and I would imagine that this expression, if you go back and read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that phrase, man of God, is one that is very carefully used throughout the Bible. It's not lavished upon every 
person who says, hey, I'm coming to do God's work. If you go back and you look through every account where the man of God is used, that phrase has a very historical meaning in the biblical text. It's one that really locates a man who has set his life out of doing this. And here Paul, the mentor, no doubt Timothy, when he read this, felt so humbled because here Paul, his mentor, whom he has watched be be thrown into the, the prison there in Philippi, Paul, the one who's gone to Athens, Paul, the one who's do so many things. He's helped Paul to write down all these letters that have been sent to these different churches that became the Holy Bible. He watches Paul do these things. He admires and looks up to him. Paul is about to die. He's an old man. He's experienced the most of his life. He's been commissioned to go to Ephesus. Timothy is there. He gets this letter from Paul. He begins to read it. And towards the end of the letter, Paul gives him, I would say lavishes him with this wonderful compliment by saying, I now consider you a man of God. You're a man of God. You're someone who has sought and pursued godly things above all else. He says, but thou, a man of God, flee these things. Again, let's, let's break down the word here. Flee what? In the very least, he's saying, Flee the pursuit of wealth. That's the most restrictive reading we could have. We could have a more liberal reading and back it up. That's the most restrictive. Do not, in other words, go out and on your mind say, I'm going to go and make a bunch of money. It's not what God wants us to do. Why? Why doesn't he want us to do that? Because as we're thinking those things and Planning all the ways we can do that. It is exhausting that time and energy and talent that we could be using to do the next thing. And that's what? Well, he said it. Pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, patience, love. You can do a lot of things, but you can't do two things at once. You can pursue a lot of things, but you can't pursue, please hear me, You cannot pursue two things at once. You can't. Jesus makes it so clear. Either we're in pursuit of him and righteousness or we're not. We're not. Now, again, here's where I I, I can. Satan begins to whisper. Oh, you see, Brad thinks you, Brother Brad thinks you shouldn't have a job. You shouldn't work hard at your job. I've never said that. Never said it. Don't believe it. I think you should do all things as unto the Lord, right? When I go to my job, regardless of the money I make, I'm going to do the best job I can. And guess what? What we found through the Jewish community over the last two millennia or longer is that when you implement the word of God in your life, guess what? You oftentimes do rise in the secular world. Because things like a good work ethic are universally respected. But here's the difference. There's a difference in somebody saying, you know what? I'm going to come to this place and I'm going to give it all that I have because it's the right thing to do. I'm going to seek after God and his righteousness and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be honest and I'm going to have integrity in all that I do. And by people noticing that, even the Bible says that a man's enemies might uplift him, right? That if a man has a good name, a good reputation, that it can even leave his enemies at peace with him. And you work your way up. And God makes you rich. There's a difference in that. 
and a Christian saying, you know what? There are just some demands of God's work that I'm going to have to cut off in order to get this. In order to do this. In order to accumulate this. I'm going to have to cut some of my pursuit. Now, he said, flee these things. And then he said, pursue these things. Here's one of the things that I'm concerned with today. Where are the young people pursuing these things? Where are our young people pursuing these things? Young person, I ask you that question. Are you pursuing righteousness? In other words, are you setting it out there? Righteousness means just living and doing right in its most simplest terms. Are you pursuing love? Are you saying to God, Lord, you know my desire for a spouse. You know my desire for a career. You know my desire for children and a future. You know those things. But those things are all secondary to pursuing you and things related to you. It concerns me today that it seems like there is a growing gap. Young person, I put the ball in your court. And I say there are all these reasons not to pursue righteousness. There are all these excuses that people can make. I want to encourage you today, pursue it. Pursue it. Pursue God. Pursue getting into this church. I want when our young people see other young people come into our church that are visitors, for them to want them to be a part of us, to show and demonstrate love, compassion, care for those people coming in. I, I challenge you. You know, here in this text, Paul says, charging twice. I charge you, challenge you. When people come in, love on them. Brother Brad, it's not part of my personality. You know what? It's not mine either. I'm just being honest with you. It's not part of my personality at all. That's part of Kathleen's personality. Not part of my personality. But you know what? My love for them and love for God transcends my personality. I want to challenge you. And again, I don't, don't lose sight. I'm not sitting here trying to condemn anybody. What I'm trying to say is this. If our young people are going to follow in our footsteps, let's make sure we're leading them the right way. They've got to see it demonstrated before their eyes. One thing that I love, I love it. I know you do too. When a young person feels burdened to stand up and testify. Don't you love that? I mean, don't you love just the, the beauty of all of it? I, mean, I could go through so many descriptors of it. Isn't it so awesome to witness? Young person, I want to challenge you to do that. But older people... Let's show them how to do that. I'm not saying to get up out of the spirit. I'm not saying take it on your own. I'm saying in this week, won't you pray that God might have something for you to say that's of God? Something to share that could have an impact that might be God could use as a tool in the hearts of your brothers and sisters. Listen, if they witness us engage, truly engage with God and others, 
it will prompt them to do the same. But if they don't, they're going to have to trot a new path. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten lost in the woods? I unfortunately have done this with my family. I got lost in the woods and I had to create a new path. Let me tell you, it was not fun whatsoever. Lifting your little kids over thorn bushes and listening to the crying and the complaints of the whole group and thinking to yourself, you know, well, I hope this is right. Here's my point. It, it created a lot of problems for us because I had to create a whole new path because I just wouldn't follow the template that was already there. I don't want our young people to have to go through that, do you? Creating a whole new path of what it's like to get up and testify and worship and preach and lead singing. and do I don't want them to have to do that. Here's my point this morning. Let's give them an example of pursuing righteousness. Notice after Paul's exhortations to, to Timothy... He uses all these words that are, as we said last week, action verbs. He says, fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal things. He goes down to verse 18, speaking of people who are rich. He says this, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, that they're ready to distribute, or that means give generously, that they're willing to communicate that they're laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Don't you see Paul's things here? He's saying, now go and do. Tell these people to go. I think what Paul knew is that the rich people in the church generally had a higher reputation than those who were poor. And he's trying to say, tell those rich people to do these things in order that it would affect the other people. I encourage you today, if you're a young person, Oh gosh, pursue the right thing. Pursue it. Go after it. Parent, gauge your children. Are your children pursuing righteousness? Or have they split hairs and they're pursuing the appearance of righteousness? Or in other words, this. So often today, parents mistaken the omission of immorality as righteousness. And they're not the same thing. Just because your kids don't drink and drive, just because your kids don't watch the wrong things, does not mean they're pursuing righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness comes, you know, we had an occasion at church one time where some kids came up and were saying, you know, we want to go and do this activity. We want to go and and go to this, basically go to a youth weekend is what it was in, in essence, and it's a little more than that, but they want to go to a youth weekend. And they didn't have the means to go. And the church got all worried about who would have, who would be responsible if we rented a van and who would be responsible if something bad happened. And, and here I thought, here these kids could be pursuing anything. And they're pursuing the right thing. And we're finding a reason not to support them. I can tell you this, one thing I've been so happy about with our church is that When the young people want to do something and it's right, we've supported them. I want to encourage us to continue to do that. And young person, if you pursue something spiritual and pursue the right thing, I think what you're going to find among all of us is that we'll move mountains to make sure you can continue your pursuit of it. 
I'm closing with this. What is your pursuit today, young person? Young saved person. If you're here today, you're a member of this church, you've been saved. What are you pursuing? Nothingness? The steps of people you ought not to be following? Or are you pursuing righteousness? Older people, the message we can take home is this. Let's lead the way. I love when Paul gets to the end and he can say about himself, I have fought a good fight. I have ran my race. I have finished my course. And now what is laid up for me is the crown of righteousness. You know, he wasn't bragging. He was just stating a fact. He had done everything he could to serve God with a clear conscience and pursue right. What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. This morning, I hope you'll understand the spirit of the message. I don't mean to be hypercritical. What I mean to do is urge you to good works. Urge you to things. That we would be an example to these younger people. They need it. In a world of bad examples, I told this to our Wednesday night crew. When I was sitting down and we were talking about our devotional on love at our home, I strove to point to people in the church that exhibited those qualities. So that the next time that my sons see those people, there would be a gentle nudge to watch and follow. Are you one of those people that these young people can follow? I pray, I pray, all the words in the world, all the beliefs in the world, all the prayers, all the desires in the world are not the same as doing it. It's not the same. We can urge our kids, but a powerful example is when we follow it and we do it. And very often that excludes the need for words. You don't have to say much. I said a lot this morning. I hope, I hope you know that I, I desire for our young people more than many other things in my life. I desire for our young people to be just pursuers of right. It is so deep in my heart. I want, I want to tell you this, young person here this morning, young kid this morning, there are not many more things that bother my heart than what your life will be like 20 years from now. I so long for you and your life to, unlike Sister Peggy, I say your name frequently. All of your names. I don't want you to just be saved. I want you to be saved. But I want you, when somebody comes to our church, to be like Timothy was. This glowing example that one could say, hey, that young, I'm impressed with that young person, Brother Brad. They really seem to want to see, they really seem to be grabbing a hold, and I could say, absolutely they are. I've told you before, the favorite person I ever pastored, and I say that jokingly, was my brother-in-law, the little time I pastored him, because, man, when he got saved, he pursued righteousness with tenacity. He just wanted it. Young person, pursue it. Please pursue it. That's our message this morning. I got to stop or I'll just keep going. Young person, I want to share with you one more thing and then we'll have our altar prayer and dismiss.
sermons like this always confounded me when I was younger because the thought that the next thought that would come to my heart is, well, what do I do now? Even if I believe you, what do I do now? And I'll share with you this. A few weeks ago, I went to a Bible study down in uh, Lafayette, and uh, we were learning uh, this. A bunch of preachers. It was a preacher's Bible study, and we were learning from um, Brother Barry Bronner. Some of you may know Brother Bronner, and some of you may not. But he's a preacher down there in Lafayette. And uh, as he was teaching, the Lord was just really affecting my heart. Just, I was just, I just couldn't stop looking at him. Got done with the lesson, and we left, and he was teaching part two the next week, and I just had to go. I just had to go to the lesson. I went to his lesson, and it just, it just gripped me, the second part of his lesson. And as he was getting to the end of that lesson, the Lord spoke to me. And here's what he said. You need to get around that man. He can help you. I don't even know what that means. I don't know how he can help me. I don't know what he can do. I don't know what I'm deficient in that I need his particular help with. But what I know, and I told him this, I called him. I said, brother, I just need to spend some time with you. Because I feel like you can help me. There was nothing even that he said that I have any clue about it. You know, young person... If you're wanting to start somewhere, I'm not saying this is the place to start, but I'm just telling you how God's worked in my life before. This is not the first time God has done that to me. Where he knew there was an influence I needed, Timothy and Paul. He knew there was an influence I needed that would help me, that would affect me. You might pray and say, Lord, who is it? Who is it that I need to be around that can help me? that may open the doors, that may shut the doors, that may help guide me while I'm navigating this path. And there might be a person who God just says, you need to, you keep, that person keeps coming to you. I've even had the arrogant thought before when God led me to somebody's, well, how could he help me? And then I came to learn, and I won't get into it, but I needed what he had more than I needed what anybody else had. And it wasn't him, it was God in him. And I know that. Young person, you pray, you say, I don't have any direction, Lord, but I want to pursue righteousness. Help me. God might lead you to somebody, and all I'd say is pursue it. Pursue it. I've got to be done here. Anybody else before we have an altar of prayer this morning?